0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards.
1: Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Heartbreaking testimony on the Hill, but will it move? Any votes? The lead starts right now.
2: Soon after, we received the news that our daughter was among the 19 students and two teachers that died as a result of gun violence.
1: Grieving parents, a distraught doctor, even a fourth-grade survivor, gripping testimony today on Capitol Hill after mass shootings changed and destroyed, in some cases, their lives. What they want from Congress versus what lawmakers are willing to do. I'm going to talk to a key Republican negotiator next and... The FBI stepping in after an overnight arrest near the home of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh will have the latest on the shocking threat. Plus, pro golfers putting their reputations on the line for a paycheck some say is blood money. Ready to tee off with Saudi Arabia's new league, ignoring the country's record on human rights and the murder of a Washington Post columnist. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. where we start with the upsetting testimony describing the human toll of gun violence in the United States, front and center on Capitol Hill today. Families of victims from the mass shootings in Buffalo, New York and Uvalde, Texas described before the House Oversight Committee, not just the horrific attacks, but what they want to see Congress do to prevent such tragedies from happening again. We also heard from the only pediatrician in Uvalde who rushed to the hospital in the minutes after the shooting only to find there, frankly, was not much he could do.
3: What I did find was something no prayer will ever relieve. Two children whose bodies had been pulverized by bullets fired at them, decapitated, whose flesh had been ripped apart, that the only clue at their identities was a blood-splattered cartoon clothes still clinging to them, clinging for life and finding none.
1: Ten-year-old Mia Sorrillo, who told CNN she survived the massacre by spreading her friend's blood all over herself and playing dead, she recorded a video for the hearing in which she talked about her top wish moving forward.
4: To have security.
5: Do you feel safe at school? Why not? Because that don't want it to
4: happen again.
5: And you think it's going to happen again? This
1: afternoon, the bipartisan negotiators who have been trying to reach a deal on gun reforms met with a larger group of their Senate colleagues to nail down exactly which proposals can get enough support to pass, if any. CNN's Manu Raju starts off our coverage from Capitol Hill with new details about what is currently in this proposal and a possible new roadblock for negotiators.
3: Those mother's cries, I will never get out of my head. In gut-wrenching testimony,
6: witnesses offered horrific details of the massacre in Uvalde, Texas. Her 19 children and two teachers were murdered at Robb Elementary School last month. A pediatrician who saw this.
3: Two children whose bodies had been pulverized by bullets fired at them, decapitated, whose flesh had been ripped apart, that the only clue as their identities was a blood-splattered cartoon clothes still clinging to them cleaning for life and finding none.
6: A fourth grader who smeared her friend's blood on her body to pretend she was dead.
4: There's a door between our classrooms and he went to there and shot my teacher and told my teacher goodnight and shot her in the head. And then he shot some of my classmates and the whiteboard. When I went to the back uh, he shot my friend was next to me, and I thought he was going to come back
6: to the room. So I grabbed the blood and uh, put it all over me.
2: The father of the survivor. That girl lost my baby girl. She's not the same little girl that I used to
6: play with. Parents of a fourth grader brutally murdered.
2: Somewhere out there, there's a mom listening to our testimony thinking I can't even imagine their pain, not knowing that our reality will one day be hers.
6: And the mother of a victim from the Buffalo grocery store shooting, detailing the injuries her son has endured.
2: As I clean his wounds, I can feel pieces of that bullet in his back shrapnel will be left inside of his body for the rest of his life.
6: All demanding action from Congress.
2: Lawmakers who continuously allow these mass shootings to continue by not passing stricter gun laws should be voted out.
6: On Wednesday, Senate negotiators discussed a narrow set of changes, including bolstering states' red flag laws and allowing juvenile records to be searched in background checks. But given GOP opposition, any deal will not restrict high-powered semi-automatic rifles or require background checks on gun show sales and over the Internet. A lot of Democrats are concerned that this emerging package is simply not going to go far enough.
7: I'm sure it won't. Listen, I have a goal to... Uh, really address gun violence at many different levels that I'd like to see achieved. Now I have to face the reality of a 50-50 Senate, the reality of uh, many Republicans who are resistant to any change. GOP
6: leaders say they want a deal focused on school security and mental health issues, noting any deal has its limits. Why do you oppose reinstating the assault weapons ban? We're 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 trying to get an outcome. Now, the chief GOP negotiator, John Cornyn, briefed Republicans in generalities about this emerging proposal during lunch today. There was some pushback, I am told, and in talking to several conservative Republican senators, that pushback is around the idea of those red flag laws, providing potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in federal incentives for states to develop those laws to take away guns from individuals deemed a risk. Some conservatives' concerns it could trample on due process rights. Others say it is duplicative and Senator Steve Dane says that I don't support gun control. I don't think gun control is the answer and says states already have that choice. So, Jake, still an open question whether a deal can be reached and whether there will be 10 Republican senators enough to break a GOP-led filibuster to get this bill through.
1: All right, Thanks. Manu Raju on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Today, the Justice Department announced the team in charge of reviewing the police response or lack thereof. In Uvalde, Texas, more than two weeks after the massacre at Robb Elementary School, local officials are still not answering basic questions from the media about what happened that day. CNN's Omar Jimenez is live for us in Uvalde. Omar, how is this investigation from the Justice Department going to work?
5: Yeah, Jake. Well, Attorney General Merrick Garland said it's going to be a number of site visits. They're going to look at what resources were made available at the time, and they're going to do a number of interviews with a wide range of stakeholders, from parents to families to law enforcement and more. This is, as he said, uh, this is work that has already begun, and they will be on the ground as needed. But at this point, at this point, he says this is not going to be a criminal investigation. This is going to be an after-action critical review of what happened so they can assess what happened now more than two weeks ago and take this a long way toward future guidance. And while they can't undo the pain, they hope this can at least lay the framework so some of these same mistakes aren't made again. And this is something the mayor of Uvalde, Don McLaughlin, welcomed. He called for it in the beginning as he admitted there were missteps in the initial release of information from law enforcement, which we now know. To use his words, we were told one thing one day, then the next day, the story and narrative changed. Now that this DOJ announcement is here, the mayor says he trusts and is fully confident this is going to be a fair and transparent process, and he offered the full cooperation of of officials here in Uvalde. But this, of course, comes as the county district attorney says it is going to be a while before we get a report from the Texas Department of Public Safety or the FBI. All right. Omar Jimenez in Uvalde,
1: Texas for us. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is Republican Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. He is a lead negotiator in these bipartisan talks. Senator, thanks for joining us. Obviously, you're in the middle of these negotiations. Are you confident there's going to be a deal? Can you give us any idea of what kind of measures you're discussing?
8: Yeah, Jake, uh, there's, uh, there's not that much really that I can tell you at this point except to say that we, we are making progress. You have uh, men and women from both sides of the aisle who are negotiating in good faith. Uh, there are a number of items that are on the table. Um, I, I, I think the odds modestly favor us getting something done and actually this is the first time in ten years i've felt that way so uh...
1: yeah I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic republican senators who are inside the room during your party lunch today say that some of your colleagues feel that the current deal might go too far they're predicting at least half of the republican conference would vote against it that's still theoretically uh, seventy five votes to pass it um, what do you say to those critics uh... are you confident you can get enough republican votes to pass at least ten uh- uh, Jake, I would
8: say it's way too soon to be uh, trying to speculate about vote counts. I mean, we haven't nailed down what's going to be in and what's not going to be in. And the actual language of the ideas that are going to be in, the language matters enormously. So I, um, certainly my hope would be a majority of Republicans would be able to support this. Um, that, that would be very much uh, where I hope we would end
1: up, but I think it's too soon to know. Senator Rick Scott, when he was Governor Rick Scott of Florida, signed into law pretty sweeping measures after the Parkland massacre in 2018, which included red flag laws, which I understand some of your colleagues are publicly voicing uh, concern about in terms of they're not providing due process and the like. But our correspondent, Leila Santiago, took a look at the red flag laws and how they're working in Florida. Even very conservative sheriffs down there say that they're, they're working really well. Is Rick Scott at all talking about how that reform that he signed into law is working
8: i haven't had that conversation with senator scott so i, I don't know uh, exactly what his view is of the implementation i can tell you this i think it's unlikely that there would be a national red flag law per se but what might find its way into this package what is uh, under consideration is providing some federal incentives and resources to encourage states to enact their own red flag laws provided that they provide some due process because after all we are talking about depriving a person of a constitutional right prior to them having actually done something wrong so you gotta be careful about how you do that Uh, but that said uh... i do think there are cases where red flag laws can work and uh... that's that's part of the discussion
1: a source tells cnn that senate minority leader mitch mcconnell has privately expressed an openness for raising the age from 18 to 21 for the ability to purchase semi-automatic rifles. He has not said that publicly. It doesn't seem as though that is part of your final deal. Um, It wasn't, when I talked to Chris Murphy, with whom you've been dealing, the Democrat on Sunday, he did not mention it. Uh, It does seem a lot of Republicans oppose it. Have you heard from other Republicans who might support stronger measures in private but won't do so publicly for whatever reason?
8: No, I, I, no, I've not had that conversation with any of my colleagues. Uh, not with Senator McConnell. Not with others. Um, uh, look, I I, I, I think that that it is worth seriously considering providing some extra scrutiny for young uh, purchasers, um, but but prohibitions are are that's that would be very tough.
1: So possibly a waiting period for somebody eighteen to twenty-one, possibly time to go through and make sure that there isn't a a juvenile record that's blinking red? Well, I I don't want to get too deep into the specifics, Jake, because these
8: are moving targets and ongoing discussions. But but, uh, a heightened level of scrutiny um, might make sense, considering that um, so many of these massacres are committed by young adults, um, guys in their late teens or early 20s. Who have a history of mental health issues. So it sort of stands to reason that you'd like to have a better way to understand that before someone walks away with a firearm.
1: You've been very active for years now, especially after um, the Sandy Hook massacre, working with uh, another fellow NRA endorsed senator, Joe Manchin, trying right. to expand background checks right. to include um, those private sales at, at gun shows. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, 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 non the, the ones commercial that aren't sales. yeah the the ones exactly that aren't done by gun stores but are rather just person right. to person um, that's not going to be in this final package w- why not why are why are your republican colleagues balking on that so so let me let's be be careful so the
8: mansion to me approach was not intended to capture a private transaction between myself and my next door neighbor for instance but what we were trying to capture and what i still think we should capture are what we consider commercial sales and I think at gun shows, you have a level of activity that really constitutes commercial sales. I think when transactions are advertised, and especially advertised over the Internet, that, that amounts to a commercial activity. I'd like to see background checks on all commercial sales. Um, I don't think the Mansion toomey version of that is going to be in a final package here. But I would suggest there are many ways that you could accomplish that goal of ensuring that you capture a lot more transactions and have that background check occur. So let's wait and see what what finally emerges. Um, I
1: am hoping that we will expand background checks in a meaningful way. The emotional testimony we heard today before the House Oversight Committee from victims of gun violence, does that have any impact on your fellow Republican senators?
8: I don't know, Jake. Um, honestly, you know, uh, most... Senators have schedules that is completely booked nonstop all day long, and very few of us, as my guests, have had time to watch a House hearing. But I understand that it was so emotionally powerful. My guess is it'll be replayed many times on many shows, and so over time people will see it. Um, uh,
1: it's very hard to say what impact that'll have. Best of luck with your negotiations, sir. Republican Senator Pat Toomey from the Great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Always appreciate your time. Thanks, Jake. Also in the politics lead, disturbing news overnight, the FBI now handling the arrest of what police say was an armed man near the Maryland home of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who he claimed he wanted to kill. Court documents show the man had on him a tactical knife, a Glock 17 pistol, two magazines, ammunition, pepper spray, zip ties, a hammer, screwdriver, nail punch, crowbar, pistol light, duct tape, and even more. Police say the man from California was picked up around 1.30 this morning and is now charged with attempted murder. CNN's Whitney, Whitney Wilde is over at the Supreme Court now for us. Whitney, what do we know about this individual's motives?
7: Well, based on what he told police and what is represented in that indictment is that he was angered by three things. He was angered by a leaked draft of the uh, Supreme Court ruling uh, that shows that the Supreme Court is very likely, based on that draft, to overturn Roe v. Wade. He was angry about that. He was angered by what he saw in Uvalde. And further, he thought that, you know, perhaps by uh, that uh, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh would, in pending uh, firearms cases and pending Second Amendment cases, would side with the Second Amendment and thus loosen gun laws. That's what he told investigators. So he thought uh, that he would give his life some purpose. Uh, he told investigators he wanted to give his life some purpose, and so he decided that he was going to come from California to Maryland to try to kill uh, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who, by the way, is not named in the indictment, but we know from police that it was his home, uh, and that he was also going to kill himself afterward. Here's how, how it all happened, Jake. At one in the morning, he got out of a taxi outside Brett Kavanaugh's home. He was dressed in all black. He had a, a suitcase, and he had a backpack. And he saw two U.S. marshal deputies standing outside their vehicle outside Brett Kavanaugh's home. He saw them and he turned and he walked away. And uh, thank goodness for those U.S. deputy marshals, something that Attorney General Merrick Garland and other law enforcement vowed would be out there to protect these justices because they know the threat risk is very real. Here's what Attorney General Merrick Garland said earlier today.
9: This kind of behavior is obviously behavior that we will not tolerate. Threats of violence and actual violence against the justices, of course, strike at the heart of our democracy, and we will do everything we can to prevent them and to hold people who do them accountable.
7: Jake, these are the very types of crimes federal officials have been warning are possible in this heightened threat environment. They are very concerned about threats to the Supreme Court justices. And uh, this case is evidence that their concerns are valid. Back to you.
1: Yeah, that is alleged political terrorism, without question. Whitney Wilde at the Supreme Court for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, America's skyrocketing fuel costs now forcing a law enforcement agency to change how it responds to some calls, plus the new access to evidence for the January 6th committee on the eve of the panel's very first primetime hearing. Stay with us. In our Money Lead, a prediction that the worst is yet to come for drivers this summer. The national average for gas could hit $6 a gallon, according to one energy analyst. Right now, drivers in 16 states and Washington, D.C. are topping off with gas $5 a gallon or more. Idaho, Ohio, and Pennsylvania just became the latest states to cross that threshold today. U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm joins us now. Madam Secretary, thanks for joining us. Some lawmakers are proposing a suspension of the federal gas tax. Others say the Biden administration needs to allow more drilling, open up more federal lands for drilling. Couldn't the administration be doing more to alleviate some of the pain at the pump?
10: Um, First of all, Jake, the administration is doing everything at its disposal and considering everything. The issue about more drilling, they have unfettered access to drilling. There is not, they're sitting on nine, they, meaning the oil and gas companies, are sitting on 9,000 permits that have been issued. This administration issued more permits for drilling of oil and gas in the first year it's been in office than the previous administration did in the first, each of the first three years. So that's not the issue. The issue is that we have a lower supply globally. Gasoline comes from oil. Oil is traded on a global market. There are fewer barrels of oil on that global market, which is driving up prices. Why? Because in the United States and around the globe, when the pandemic hit, the oil and gas companies pulled production offline because there was no demand or very little, a lot less demand for oil and gas. They have not ramped up production the amount it was before the pandemic. They're about a million barrels shy, uh, 10% less in the United States. In the United States, they will be up to a million barrels more up to where they were before the pandemic by the end of the year. But then you've also got countries like the United States, Canada, the EU saying we're not going to buy Russian oil. Russia is a big exporter of oil that pulls another million barrels off the market. And then you've got China coming out of COVID. That increases, increases demand for more, so we've got a supply and demand mismatch. The president used the biggest tool at his disposal, which was releasing a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and he's looking at all other options. But no, no, everybody should know this is a global issue. If you were in Canada, you would be paying six dollars and thirty-nine cents a gallon. If you were in Germany, you would be paying eight dollars and ninety cents. Right a gallon. If you're in Singapore, you'd be paying $9.08 a gallon. It is happening everywhere.
1: I want to get your reaction to a Facebook post today from your home state of Michigan, where you served as governor. It reads, quote, Isabella County Sheriff's Office is feeling the pain at the pump as well. We have exhausted what funds were budgeted for fuel. With several months to go before the budget reset, I have instructed the deputies to manage whatever calls are acceptable over the phone, unquote. Does the White House have a plan for public servants such as those sheriffs and sheriff's deputies who need gas to do their jobs.
10: It's not just the police officers. It is also uh, emergency responders from hospitals. It is people who desperately need to get to work and cannot afford the price of gas. It is all of that. I mean, clearly states should be prioritizing first responders and police officers and safety when they help to be able to consider funding or providing supplemental funds, which many states have as a result of the afford, uh, the um, rescue, American Rescue Plan. We, we in the federal government are looking at all sorts of options too, but we also know that because of the efforts of the Biden administration to be able to make our economy a little better than the other um, countries, the other advanced nations, for example, uh, our inflation rate and the inflation rate across the world and advanced nations are pretty comparable in the uk it's about nine percent but our unemployment rate is a lot less our unemployment rate is 3.6 percent in the other right. countries it's about six in EU, it's about 6.2 i say that because while uh, other countries are still struggling with unemployment that's not been our issue we have been able to fund the ability for people to get back to work and provided funds to states so that they can help to shore up their first responders as they deal with this fuel crisis too.
1: It sounds like your message to those uh, sheriffs and sheriff's deputies is ask Governor Whitmer to get get some funding your way to help out. Let me ask you, because shares of Exxon climbed above $100 on Tuesday for the first time since 2014. And as you know, Western sanctions on Russian oil have made the market even tighter. So that's been a huge advantage for companies like Exxon, whose profit doubled last quarter to $5.5 billion. That's really insane profits. Uh, Is the administration putting any pressure on U.S.-based oil companies to maybe relieve some of the pain that is hitting consumers?
10: Absolutely. We are calling upon them, especially to increase production. I mean, many of them, as you know from your reporting right there, have decided to prioritize shareholder buybacks and profit, instead of increasing production of oil and gas. And so this administration has been calling upon them to increase production at this moment when when people are having to choose between going to work, putting food on the table, et cetera. These prices are unacceptable. I will say this, that um, the, some of the oil and gas companies have started to increase production, and the Energy Information Administration has said that by the end of this year, there will be another million barrels per day as a result of domestic oil and gas producers. The Energy Information Agency Administration has also projected, they just came out with their short-term energy outlook, and they say that by the end of this year, um, we will see prices dropping as a result of that incremental increase in uh, production in the United States and globally as mm-hmm. well. But the bottom line is, it's still going to be expensive, and we are continuing to ask the oil and gas companies to prioritize production so that we can stabilize this mismatch between supply and demand.
1: The White House um, has announced uh, plans for uh, President Biden uh, to go uh, to meet with Saudi Arabia's de facto ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, next month. There's there's a lot of pressure for the president to hold Saudi Arabia accountable for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, a Washington Post columnist, as well as lingering concerns of 9-11 families. Can the president do that? Can he can he hold MBS accountable while also getting his help when it came to comes to global energy markets?
10: Well, he's certainly going to try. I mean, there is no doubt that Saudi Arabia has to account for what they did with Jamal Khashoggi, what what MBS did. But there's also no uh, question that we have to increase global supply. And OPEC, led by Saudi Arabia, is at the head of the pack for that. And so In order to be able to reduce this pressure that people are feeling at the gas pump, we want to see all producers across the globe increase supply, including our own domestic oil and gas companies.
1: All right, Secretary Granholm, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Coming up next, the 40-plus billion dollars in aid uh, that the U.S. is giving to Ukraine. CNN got a very up-close look at some of the sophisticated weapons supplied by the U.S. now being used against Russia. Stay with us. In our world-leading exclusive new look at weapons that could change the war for Ukraine. These guns are called M777s. They were given to Ukraine by the United States. Soldiers can use them to strike Russian forces up to 20 miles away. CNN's Matthew Chance is on the front lines of the war, where Ukrainians explain why these weapons are giving them a unique advantage.
11: These are just some of the powerful American guns now on the Ukrainian front line. Meant to make a critical difference in the war with Russia. Of course, they might be targeted at any moment. Media access to them is highly sensitive and rare. All right, well, we've been taken here, very close to the front lines in southern Ukraine, where we're being shown these US provided long range artillery systems. It's an M777. According to Ukrainian military officials that we've spoken to, The US has so far supplied approximately 90 of these weapons, and many of them are already being used on the front line, including in this area here in the south of Ukraine, pounding Russian positions. We were only shown a training exercise, but Ukrainian military officials say these are exclusive images of the same weapons in action just this week, firing on Russian forces more than 20 miles away including on this Grad multiple rocket launcher they say had been targeting civilian areas. Ukrainian aerial footage shows the Grad being destroyed, its ammunition exploding after a direct hit.
12: Ukrainian artillery troops say their guns are
11: now giving them an edge and their Russian counterparts are feeling the pain.
0: Yes, they definitely noticed as we became faster and more precise. They are not able to keep up with us as they are operating old Soviet guns, which are heavier, less precise, slower and difficult to use. These guns are objectively the best in the world, and when we started using them, our efficiency rose tremendously.
11: It's giving the Ukrainian military an advantage, they say, on the battlefield, because these weapons are much lighter much more accurate uh, than they've used before much more mobile as well um, and it's giving them the edge they say to try and help them push back russian forces all along uh, this region but of course the complaint if there, if you can call it a complaint is that they want more of this they want more weapons like this and they want even longer range rocket systems which have already been promised of course by the united states to push back the russians even further and ukrainian authorities are likely to need more guns still to hold them back. With no end to this conflict, the demand for US weapons may be endless too. Well, Jake, to reiterate that Ukrainian officials are again calling tonight for more deliveries of US weapons and for those deliveries to come as quickly as possible so they can defend, they say, Ukrainian cities against further Russian attack, This, of course, as Russian forces make more gains in the Donbass region. Jake, back to you.
1: All right, Matthew Chance in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Just in a change of plans for evidence that was about to get handed over to the January 6th committee. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, we're just one day away from the first primetime hearing of the January 6th. Capital attack and a new trove of potential evidence that was supposed to be turned over to House investigators tonight, it turns out, will not be. After all, a federal judge just decided to give right-wing attorney John Eastman more time to turn over more than 150 emails he had been fighting to protect. Eastman, of course, a staunch ally of then-President Trump, who pushed the unconstitutional theory that Vice President Pence could have sent electoral votes for Biden back to the states on January 6th. CNN's Ryan Nobles is on Capitol Hill for us. Ryan, what is in these emails that, that the investigators think are so important? Well, these are emails
9: sent and received by John Eastman, that conservative lawyer who's thought by many to be the architect of these various questionable legal strategies to provi- prevent the certification of the election results. And in these particular emails, the judge specifically said that he would allow the committee to have access to them despite an uh, attorney-client privilege claim because he does believe that there is evidence of some sort of crime possibly being committed. Uh, and he specifically pointed to the fact that the emails talk about these legal strategies somewhat going around the court system, that, uh, that they would be put in place even if judges ruled against them. And that could be an indication that they were trying to stand in the way of the peaceful transfer of power outside the of the legal system. And of course, uh, that flies in the face of some of the claims uh, by the former president and his, uh, his associates. They were just doing this because they thought the election was held fraudulently. Jake, this would indicate otherwise.
1: Top Democratic leaders have been telling CNN that they fear the Attorney General Merrick Garland might have missed his moment uh, to bring any criminal charges against uh, former President Trump or others in the Trump orbit, orbit regarding January 6th. Uh, what has them so worried
9: well, Jake, they simply believe that the timing of all of this is running out, that there is only so much time uh, during the this the period of time where the attorney general is in charge uh, and as all this evidence is collected for them to get everything in place to try and, and hand out these charges. Now, uh, there are members of the select committee that feel differently that, that, that this investigation is still ongoing, that there is still the possibility that enough evidence uh, would emerge in order to take that process The question is whether or not Garland will act on all of that information. That remains an open question, and we could get more insight into that as these hearings start to kick off on Thursday night as they start to lay out the case of what they've uncovered over the past 10 months.
1: All right, Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. A pro golf tournament set to tee off, offering athletes hundreds of millions of dollars in prize money. How some of the biggest names in golf are responding to the blood-soaked hands of Saudi Arabia, largely footing the bill. Stay with us. The sports lead hitting the green. lured by hundreds of millions of dollars, some of the most recognizable names in golf are set to tee off in a new Saudi-funded golf series called Live. Despite a long history of human rights abuses against Saudi, allegations against Saudi Arabia and the kingdom's role, of course, in 9-11, not to mention the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Six-time major champion Phil Mickelson and former world number one Dustin Johnson are among the stars who are going to play in tomorrow's inaugural event outside London. As CNN's Alex Thomas reports for us now, critics say the Saudi regime is sports watching, attempting to use sports to reshape its brutal image. Backed by
12: Saudi Arabia's billions of dollars, Live Golf could fundamentally change the professional men's game. The new series offers players fewer tournaments and guaranteed prize money. Lots of it. Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson are the biggest stars to sign up and the pair are earning more from this than their entire prize money from a combined 45 years on the PGA tour.
13: This is something that I thought was best for me and my family and um, you know I'm very excited about playing and obviously you know this is the first week and you know it's just yeah something exciting is something new and um, yeah I think it's great for the game of golf and so um, you know that's why I'm here.
12: Live Golf CEO Greg Norman says his new series is game-changing, especially for lower-ranked players.
4: The PGA Tour doesn't give a rat's ass about what's going to happen to you after you finish playing the game of golf. They don't.
12: But the money hasn't impressed everyone. Norman told the Washington Post that Tiger Woods turned down a high nine-figure sum to join. Woods has called the venture, quote, polarizing. While another golf legend, Jack Nicklaus, says he also rejected an offer to get involved worth $100 million.
14: I had zero interest in it. I don't care what kind of money they would have thrown at me. My allegiance has been to the PGA Tour. I grew up with the PGA Tour. I helped found the PGA Tour as it is today. And my allegiance is there. And it's going to stay there.
12: It's the backing by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, chaired by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, that has attracted the stiffest criticism. The Arab nation has long been accused of sports washing, using the popularity of sporting events to clean up its reputation for human rights abuses and alleged state-sponsored killings. A US intelligence report claimed bin Salman himself sanctioned the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. Something Bin Salman denies. Even Mickelson said it was scary getting involved with the Saudis, but he says golf desperately needs change, and real change
5: is always preceded by disruption. I don't condone human rights violations at all. I, I, I don't think it, I, I, nobody here does, um, throughout the world. And I'm certainly aware of what has happened with Jamal Khashoggi, and it's I think it's terrible. I've also seen the good that the game of golf has done throughout history, and I believe that Live Golf is going to do a lot of good for the game as well. Despite the reservations,
12: Live Golf is forging ahead with eight tournaments this year, five of which are in the United States, with the season finale at the Trump National Doral Course in Florida. A couple of months ago, this project looked finished. Now it has a Hall of Famer in Mickelson last year's world number one in Johnson, and reports that Bryson DeChambeau will be next. You know, Jake, money often trumps morals, and far from going away, this Live Golf series is gaining momentum before a ball has even been struck.
1: Alex Thomas at the site of tomorrow's inaugural Live Golf tournament just outside London. Thanks so much. Some of the biggest names in gymnastics are taking on the FBI now. The billion-dollar action they plan to make after a botched sex abuse investigation could have saved many of them years, if not a lifetime, of pain. Stay with us. Welcome to the Lead Up, Jake Tapper. This hour, demanding accountability from the government. Olympic gold medalist Simone Biles, Ali Raisman, Michaela Maroney, among gymnasts seeking a billion dollars from the FBI for its failure to investigate widespread sexual abuse by Larry Nassar, despite having been told of the abuse. Plus, Voters in two of the most liberal cities in the United States sent a clear message to the Democratic Party last night. What were they saying? And is anyone listening? And leading this hour, heartbreaking testimony on the Hill today. A mother who now has to clean the holes in her son's body from the bullet wounds he suffered during the racist massacre at the Buffalo grocery store. A terrified 10-year-old who smeared her friend's blood over her body to avoid the same fate as her classmates in Uvalde the pediatrician who's known most of the Uvalde victims since birth, describing how bullets tore their little bodies to shreds, and a mom recounting the last time she saw her daughter, Lexi Rubio, at Robb Elementary School.
2: Lexi received the Good Citizen Award and was also recognized for receiving all A's. At the conclusion of the ceremony, we took photos with her before asking her to pose for a picture with her teacher, Mr. Reyes. That photo, her last photo, ever was taken at approximately 1054 AM. To celebrate, we promised to get her ice cream, Betty I told her we loved her and we would pick her up after school. I can still see her walking with us toward the exit. In the reel that keeps scrolling across my memories, she turns her head and smiles back at us to acknowledge my promise. And then we left. I left my daughter at that school, and that decision will haunt me for the rest of my life.
1: These are American stories. And now the people at the center of them are begging and pleading with their elected leaders to do something and do something now. A bipartisan group of U.S. senators has been trying to strike a narrow, modest deal on gun reforms. One of the lead negotiators telling me in the last hour that he is cautiously optimistic that they can get something done. Despite ongoing talks on Capitol Hill today, it is still legal in most states for an 18-year-old to buy a semi-automatic weapon. CNN's Josh Campbell went to a gun range to show us just what such a weapon can do.
15: They are known as assault-style weapons
1: and have been used
15: in some of the country's deadliest shootings. From Uvalde, Tulsa, and El Paso to Parkland, San Bernardino, and Sandy Hook, The high-powered assault rifle has been the weapon of choice for many of the killers. Line is hot. The Los Angeles Police Department demonstrates an AR-style semi-automatic rifle for us on the
5: department's gun range. You have a 16-inch to 20-inch barrel. You have a stock that is shouldered. You're going to be accurate at farther distances as opposed to a pistol.
15: Not to mention, like some other weapons, it can fire a bullet with enough power to pierce soft body armor something Sergeant James Zaboravan knows firsthand. Oh,
3: jeez. It's definitely an automatic weapon.
15: He took assault weapons fire during the now infamous 1997 North Hollywood shootout, where two bank robbers wearing body armor fired on police for nearly an hour, injuring eight people and 12 officers, including Sergeant
5: Zaboravan. You're being hit with pieces of the vehicles we were hiding behind, uh, asphalt, uh, radiator fluid. Felt like we were being stunned by bees.
15: That shooting changed policy prompting the LAPD and other departments to upgrade their own weaponry to counter the increasingly powerful guns used by assailants. That firepower from weapons is studied inside a ballistics lab at Wayne State University, where researchers simulate a bullet's impact On the human body.
16: It's a block of 20% gelatin and it's meant to represent the human tissues, so soft tissues.
15: Watch as Cynthia Burr's team fires a handgun round at 1,000 feet per second into the gelatin block.
16: For this particular round you'll see the bullet come in on this side, you see this temporary cavity here happening, so that expansion is what happens in the body and then it collapses down. So that's where your damage comes in.
15: Now watch as the team fires a round from an assault rifle.
16: We see a lot more disruption. This round actually breaks apart. It doesn't exit, so it's about 3,000 feet per second, and all of that energy goes into the soft tissue. Um, We have a piece of plastic here to reflect to do the videos, and it actually lifted the plastic up off the table with the energy.
15: An aftermath photo of the handgun round shows a relatively straight line through the tissue, exiting the other side. But not so with a round from an AR-15.
16: It basically goes into the body and creates an explosion inside the body.
15: Trauma surgeons say the wound from an assault rifle
3: can be catastrophic. And the worst part is in a child. All the vital organs are that much closer together. So each of those bullets causes, you know, irreversible damage.
15: In Uvalde, Texas, families were asked for DNA swabs to help the authorities identify their children.
16: As a mom, it really affects me, right? Because um, I cannot imagine having a child endure this.
15: And with high-capacity magazines, suspects can shoot for much longer. Now, the discussion about high capacity magazines largely centers on reducing the amount of time that a suspect can fire without having to reload. As a former FBI agent, we were trained to quickly get your weapon reloaded and back up on target. But for a suspect, for example, who isn't trained, you can see using this training weapon, that is a process. It involves removing the empty magazine, obtaining a fresh round of ammunition. Loading it into the weapon, charging the weapon, getting it back up on target. Those are all precious seconds where victims can be fleeing, the gun can jam, or the suspect could be engaged by law enforcement or bystanders. Knowing the damage that sustained firepower can do, researchers hope their critical findings lead to awareness. Regardless of where one comes down on the gun control debate, it's indisputable that the assault weapon causes significant damage inside the body.
16: Definitely. But this is the reality. This is what's happening.
15: Now, Jake, although the Justice Department says that handguns have been used in most mass shootings, it's important to note that the deadliest mass shooters have opted for this AR-15 style weapon. And you can see why. That ballistic demonstration there in our story shows you the disastrous impact that this weapon can have on the human body. Jake, this weapon that was designed originally
1: for the use by soldiers on the battlefield is now causing unspeakable carnage here at home. Jake. Josh Campbell, thank you so much, appreciate it. Let's bring in CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, to get the other end of this coverage. Uh, Sanjay, today a pediatrician on the Hill described witnessing what he calls the carnage in my hometown of Uvalde during the hearing. Uh, Take a listen.
3: What I did find was something no prayer will ever relieve. Two children whose bodies have been pulverized by bullets fired at them, decapitated, whose flesh had been ripped apart that the only clue at their identities was a blood splattered cartoon clothes still clinging to them, clinging for life and finding none.
1: Explain, why are bullets from rifles such as an AR-15 or an AR-15 style weapon so much more destructive to the human body than others?
14: It, yeah, that's, that's hard to hear, Jake, first of all, but, but the, it's, it's all about the energy of, of the round, you know, and, and what's interesting is that it's not even necessary about the size of the the round, size of the bullet. Some people think it's a bigger bullet. Not necessarily. It could be smaller bullets. It's about the velocity. It's velocity uh, times the the mass of the the bullet, but it's just going so much faster coming out of one of these uh, AR-15 type rifles that overall the amount of energy that is then transferred into the body is much, much higher. The process that uh, Josh was talking about uh, was something known as cavitation. It literally causes cavities within the body. Uh, Whereas a a handgun, for example, much less energy will go straight through a linear line, a bullet sized line through that with the the rifle because of that energy, it creates that cavity instead.
1: You have witnessed uh, injuries like these firsthand when you were in Iraq covering the war there. Tell us what you saw.
14: Yeah, and you know, when I was in Iraq, you may remember, Jake, that was during the time that there was a ban on these types of weapons. So we weren't seeing a lot of these types of injuries here in the United States. So for the first time for me is, uh, was really on the battlefields. And it's, it's, it's tough to describe even. I mean, you know, limbs uh, really kind of blown off. People who came in initially into these Devil Docks camps, the medical camps where I was uh, reporting, a lot of times you couldn't tell initially, was it, a, was it a firearm or was it an IED or something? That's how significant the injuries were. I ended up operating on somebody, Jake, uh, who had been shot, and it went through the Kevlar of his helmet and landed through the skull into the brain just to give you an idea again of the the energy of one of these bullets that is the the big difference
1: you talk about quote an emmett till moment uh, in your essay today on cnn.com for folks who don't know emmett till if they remember that he was the black teen that was violently murdered uh in mississippi in 1955 um when he allegedly whistled at a white woman, although that's supposedly, so It's actually not true. He didn't do that. Um, his mom, Till's mom, famously insisted on an open casket funeral for him to, quote, let the world see what I've seen. And, and those photos did. Uh, they were published in a magazine. What are you hearing in the medical community about AR-15s, and the desire to show the American people what they do so the news media and the government is no longer sanitizing this as these massacres happen.
14: This is a big point of discussion within the uh, people that I've been talking to, the medical community, and there is no consensus on this. There are people who believe those types of images, as with Emmett Till, might make a huge difference, and there's others who think maybe not. I think where there is consensus is... It has to be the, the family fundamentally that's that's you know making this decision. I mean, Emmett Till's mom in that case. It's, it's tough, uh, Jake. I mean, you heard that pediatrician describe some of what they saw in that classroom. I mean, I, if you listen to his words very carefully, it is horrific to think about. To add the imagery to that would be a lot for people to absorb. I mean, even for medical people. But I think, again, the consensus is that it has to be a family's very personal decision.
1: And you know that you think that we in the United States should be treating gun violence as a public health emergency. Explain.
14: Well, I mean, look, if you look overall at what constitutes a public health emergency, a sudden incidence of increase in uh, violence, injuries, and death, we are certainly seeing that. Uh, Over my career as a trauma neurosurgeon, the numbers have gone up significantly. But if you look at the United States, for example, compared to other countries in the world, Many people, they know this data, but it's, I mean, it's not even close, right? U.S. ranks first among large high-income countries, 13 times greater than France, 23 times greater than Australia. But for children now under the age of 19, this is the leading cause of death. I mean, it's hard to believe that. In part, it's because automotive accidents have come down to some degree over the years, but gun violence, gun-related injuries have gone up significantly, and that's, that's part of the problem. If you look at the CDC's website, there is a dashboard for COVID, understandably. There is now a dashboard for monkeypox, but there's still not a dashboard for gun violence and, and gun-related deaths. It's still very hard to collect this data, as I found writing the article. News reports, media reports, things like that, local reports, people cobble together to, to create this sort of data we're not treating it like the public health emergency that it clearly is. Leading cause of death for kids right now, Jake, is this.
1: An absolute disgrace. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Gold medalist Simone Biles, Ali Raisman, Michaela Maroney, and others are among the gymnasts seeking a billion dollars the, from the FBI for their agents having ignored the sexual abuse complaints and allegations against Larry Nassar, the next step in the gymnasts' long fight for justice. Then the eyebrow-raising comments from an NFL assistant coach about January 6th why the House Select Committee might want to pay attention. Just moments ago, President Biden arriving in Los Angeles for the Summit of the Americas, where he is expected to unveil a new economic partnership. The summit is for every nation in the Western Hemisphere, theoretically, but this time the U.S. chose to not invite Venezuela or Nicaragua or Cuba, and the leaders of several other countries, including Mexico, are Protesting their absence by boycotting the summit, CNN's Caitlin Collins is in Los Angeles ahead of President Biden's big speech. Caitlin, is the absence of the Mexican president hanging any sort of shadow over the event?
13: A, a huge shadow, really, Jake. Because of course President Biden is hosting this year. That means the United States gets to decide who is invited, and they chose not to invite those three countries, saying that they believed that they were not going to invite dictators to this event, and that's what caused the. President of Mexico to drop out. He had been threatening to do so, and the White House wasn't quite sure whether or not he would live up to that threat, but then he did this week by saying he was not going to be attending the Summit of the Americas if all of the leaders were not invited. And so now the White House finds himself in a place where they've been trying to talk about these lofty goals they have while here, talking about reestablishing U.S. leadership, solving and working on issues like climate change, recovering from the pandemic. Obviously, migration is top of the list, but it's pretty hard to do that when the president of Mexico is not even here. And the White House has kind of tried to downplay those absences, Jake, and said instead those governments are sending deputies in their place, but it is still going to make it difficult for them to put on this front of America and leadership back in the region given a lot of those leaders of key leaders of places in the region are not here actually present one thing i should note though jake is that of course the leader of venezuela was not invited neither was the interim leader juan guaidó though president biden did just speak to him as he was on his way here and we should also note that the president will be meeting with the president of brazil while he's here who was famously close of course to president former president trump It's going to be a pretty awkward meeting, potentially, Jake, given President Bolsonaro has questioned whether or not President Biden actually won the 2020 election. But the White House says expect them to have a candid conversation.
1: Caitlin, one of the focuses of the summit is, of course, migration, which is a big issue in the United States right now. Can there be substantive accomplishments on that issue if the president of Mexico or our neighbor to the south is not there?
13: I think that's why there's such skepticism as people are coming into this summit, knowing that that's really the dynamic. But the White House is arguing that, yes, there can be progress. Despite that, they pointed to the fact that the president of Mexico is coming to the White House next week. But this issue of immigration is obviously one of the ones at the forefront, Jake. It is something that every president has dealt with, with migration. You see there's a caravan in southern Mexico right now. They say they are coming up to the southern border of the United States. And so this is something that President Biden has dealt with, given there's already been an influx of migrants there at the border. And so that is a big discussion here. But, of course, Jake, now the president of Mexico will not be president for those discussions. Not be president for those discussions.
1: I knew what you meant. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. <laughs> Appreciate it. Searching for justice. What will it take for the people meant to protect U.S. gymnasts to be held accountable for allowing Dr. Larry Nasser to continue to sexually abuse hundreds of gymnasts? Simone Biles, Ali Raisman, Michaela Maroney, they're trying to find out. Stay with us. In our sports lead, the biggest scandal in the history of athletics. Today, more than 90 women and girls sexually abused by convicted child molester and former Team USA Gymnastics Dr. Larry Nasser are seeking more than a billion dollars from the FBI. The gymnasts say that investigators could have ended Nasser's abuse and protected them and other victims had FBI agents not mishandled the case. Claimants include Olympic champions Simone Biles and Allie Raisman and Michaela Maroney, each of whom have submitted claims for $50 million. And as CNN's Jean Casares reports for us now, authorities now have six months to settle those claims before a lawsuit can be filed in federal court.
4: The FBI on official notice. We have been failed and we deserve answers. 90 female athletes victimized by disgraced Dr. Larry Nasser. Seeking more than a billion dollars in damages from the agency in administrative claims, a required step before a lawsuit can be filed. I blame Larry Nasser, and I also blame an entire system that enabled and perpetrated his abuse. The FBI's Indianapolis field office was notified in 2015 that Nasser, a longtime team doctor for U.S. Olympic gymnastics and Michigan State University, had sexually abused female gymnasts. I then proceeded to tell them about London
7: and how he'd signed me up last on his sheet so he could molest me for hours twice a day. I told him I told them how he molested me right before I won my team gold medal. The
4: FBI interviewed the athletes, but according to an inspector's general report, senior officials, quote, failed to respond with the utmost seriousness and urgency, made numerous errors, and failed to, quote, take steps to mitigate the ongoing
17: threat posed by Nassar. I am haunted
13: by the fact that even after I reported my abuse, so many women and girls had to suffer at the hands of Larry Nassar.
4: The inspector general also found the FBI supervisory special agent made false statements to investigators in an effort to minimize or excuse his errors. What is the point
7: of reporting abuse if our own FBI agents are going to take it upon themselves to bury that report in a drawer? Nasser was
4: convicted in 2017 and sentenced up to 175 years
7: in state prison. Imagine feeling like you have no power and no voice. Well, you know what, Larry? I have both power and voice, and I am only beginning to just use them.
4: The Department of Justice declined multiple times to prosecute the FBI employees involved. It would not comment on these new claims, but the FBI has previously condemned the conduct.
9: The actions and inaction of the FBI employees detailed in this report are totally
7: unacceptable.
4: The FBI can now respond to the athletes' claims. If they are not settled in six months, the attorneys representing them can
7: file a lawsuit. It disgusts me that we are still fighting for the most basic answers and accountability over six years later. Attorney John Manley out
4: of California has stood by the side of all of these victims from the beginning, pursuing for them justice. They have been at this for a long time. Many of these women were sexually assaulted when they were in their teens. Now we are 2022 and they are finally asking the FBI, one last time possibly, we deserve justice. Jake?
1: Dean Casares, thanks so much. Here to discuss CNN Sports Analyst and USA Today columnist Christine Brennan. Uh, Christine, so Olympic gold medalist Michaela Maroney released a statement about why she and her fellow gymnasts are filing this claim. Uh, It reads in part, quote, "My my fellow survivors and I were betrayed by every institution that was supposed to protect us. I had some hope that they would keep their word and hold the FBI accountable after we poured out our hearts to the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee and begged for justice It is clear that the only path to justice and healing is through the legal process, unquote. Now, Christine, we all remember that incredibly powerful hearing last year. It it is stunning that the FBI did not choose to prosecute. What's your reaction to this?
18: It's so reprehensible, Jake. It's been going on for years. And every time you hear about this, every time we talk about it, Gene's report, you just get angry all over again. What this nation failed to do for these women, forget for a moment that they're heroes and you're cheering for them. It's the red, white, and blue, and they're winning Olympic gold medals, and they're great role models for your kids. Forget all that. Just American women, girls and women, to be failed so miserably uh, by every everything. U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, USA Gymnastics, Justice Department, the FBI. And it was two weeks ago the Justice Department decided, Jake, not to prosecute the two FBI agents who so egregiously just basically tabled uh, the, the, this horrifying news that they heard in 2015, allowing perhaps another hundred women to be abused by Larry Nasser before anyone woke up to what they were hearing in Indianapolis, before making a phone call to Michigan. The most basic FBI work failed to do it, and then the Justice Department fails to prosecute them this is why we're seeing this lawsuit today.
1: Take a listen to what three-time Olympic gold medalist Ali Raisman told me last year.
7: I think there needs to be an investigation of the FBI, USAG, and USOPC, and also looking at the interplay among all three organizations, because if we don't have answers, then we're relying on guesswork and people that enabled our abuse might still be in positions of power. So um, saying that you're sorry, or we we will never forget. This will happen again. It's not enough. Those are just empty promises.
1: It's really interesting that she cited in that interview three organizations uh, that she wanted there to be an investigation of. One was USA, the USA Olympic Committee. One was USA Gymnastics, and the third was the FBI. Right,
18: right. The failure there is again extraordinary. It is breathtaking. No matter. You know, you just, you kind of can't believe that what these young women did was, Jake, they did the exact right thing. They called the FBI. They called the authorities. They said, help. And the FBI failed to help them. Um, U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee did have a major investigation. Uh, All new leadership of the U.S. OPC. Um, A lot of the bad people are gone, uh, the people that were involved in this. USA Gymnastics has had about four different leaders, uh, obviously still concerned about that, but there has been a change. I'm not saying it's over. Uh, But there have been there are new people. The FBI, though, again, uh, one was let go of the two agents who who blew it back in 2015. One was let go. The other retired. Um, And these women continue to have to fight. And when they do this, Jake, as you know, they talk about how this plunges them back once again into the horrors of Larry Nasser. So we as a nation are making them relive this so that they can fight these battles and hopefully get justice in the end.
1: Yeah, they are fighting these battles for future generations of boys and girls. And it is a shame that we rely upon them to do it and not, we can't rely on our leaders to do it. But God bless them. They're, they're certainly American heroes.
18: They yeah, are, they absolutely are. And I've covered a lot of them over the years. And they're wonderful people. And of course, Simone Biles with the conversation about mental health. So they continue to lead and be the conscience of their sport and of all sports and reminding us of all the good in, in, in them, even as we see all the bad in so many of our institutions.
1: Christine Brennan, thanks so much. Coming up, why an NFL coach's comments about the January 6th committee and January 6th itself should alarm the members of the committee ahead of their primetime hearing. Stay with us. In our politics lead, another primary election night in America. Voters in key states had very clear messages to send to their elected leaders. fix crime in two of the most liberal cities in America. Rising concerns about crime and homelessness burst to the forefront as San Francisco voters recall District Attorney Chase Boudin, a progressive who uh, ended cash bail and tried to reduce the number of people sent to prison. In the Los Angeles mayor's race, public safety also issue number one, former Republican and billionaire developer Rick Caruso using the issue to best six-term Congresswoman Karen Bass. The two are now headed to a runoff in November, let's discuss, Maria Cardona, let me start with you. What message, if you were a Democratic leader mm-hmm. and you're seeing this in liberal cities, mm-hmm. what would you be telling your uh, the members of the House and Senate?
17: That you should listen and serve the interests of the people who voted for you as opposed to a rigid ideology for the sake of a rigid ideology. And what is even more significant, uh, I believe, is that Democrats have long been the party that believes in the good that government can do. And that, I think, can continue and should be one of the messages of these candidates. But you also have to look at the concerns of their constituents, of the voters, what fears they have. And they are pretty clear. People are fearful in their livelihoods because of all the chaos that's going on, from the economy to inflation to crime to gun violence It is a slew of issues, and what Democrats need to focus on is what can they do to get government to respond in the best way possible to make people feel safe, to make people understand that they get that what their job is, is to hopefully make their lives better and easier, and that has not been happening.
1: And and Ramesh, let me ask you, because there are a lot of House Republicans facing primaries from, I don't know if it's the right, but from MAGA forces, uh, people especially who voted uh, either for the January 6th committee or to impeach Trump even, and, and they either won or were positioned to survive Tuesday's contests. Um, what are your key takeaways from those races?
19: So I think if we look at the broad sweep of these races and Trump's endorsements and who's pro-Trump and, and all that stuff, um, we always want to say, well, this means Trump's support is rising in the party. It's declining. But if you look at this overall pattern, it's not much of an overall pattern. The voters are not primarily evaluating these candidates in terms of Donald Trump. And in a way, that's actually a good sign uh, if you want to see Trump's importance within the Republican Party decline. He is, I think, boosting his candidates, but by no means is he a a sure guarantor of victory for some of these candidates.
1: So tomorrow night, the focus is going to turn back to the January 6th attack on the Capitol when the committee holds a public primetime hearing. Uh, The defensive coordinator for the Washington commanders, Jack Del Rio, that's D.C.'s hometown team, not one I root for, uh, today called the attack, January six. he called it a dust-up. I want you to take a listen.
19: People's livelihoods are being destroyed. Businesses are being burned down. No problem. And then we have a dust-up at the Capitol. Well, there's no, nothing burned down. And we're not going to talk about, we're going to make that a major deal. I just think it's kind of two standards.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, obviously people died. <laughs> and second of all, obviously this was bigger than about the the vandalism, it was about trying to overturn an election. But the reason I'm playing it is because this is a prevalent attitude, uh, maybe not the majority attitude, but a prevalent one that the, that the um, members of Congress are going to have to come to terms with.
20: Look, we have to talk about media consumption here because that is the elephant in the room, which is that let's just put it on the table that a third of the country is not going to watch it because networks, including Fox News, have said they're not going to mm-hmm. carry it. In prime time. So this is the big difference, right, between the bombshell revelations, for instance, during Watergate, when the entire nation was riveted and all watching the same thing. A third of the country is not going to be watching this. We've had people saying the same thing, Jake, depending on what your political stripes are, really since the beginning after January 6th. So I don't know that this is necessarily an indication of us being in a different place versus we just haven't changed. You still have a third of the country that's not going to be tuned into this and not necessarily going to absorb the bombshell revelations if there
21: are. And that gets right at one of the primary goals for the committee here. Right. It's never been just about, uh, it, this is definitely part of it, but it's never been just about filling in the gaps of what happened that day and finding out who knew what and how high up the chain some of that communication went. It was also about telling the public uh, just How under threat democracy was at that point Um, is when you talk to members of Congress. That's one of the reasons they've always emphasized the need for public hearings here. So the fact that a main portion of the country may not be tuning into that, we'll have to see, is important.
1: And and I think one of the points here that that you're getting at is that, and Jack Del Rio needs to understand this, it's not just about the attack that day, right? Right. This is about a month's long plan to overturn the election, whether, you know, uh, by suppressing the vote uh, in ways uh, legal or, or, or questionable, mm-hmm. and then in courtrooms before election boards mm-hmm. with pressure campaigns, calling the Secretary of State of Georgia and Fake on, and, uh, yeah, and, and all these these alternate slates. I mean, this this was more than just that day.
19: Yeah, that's right, and I think that um, uh, that has the potential of being lost when it's it's not just that one-third of the country isn't going to be watching it. Way more than a third of the country is not going to be watching this. We have a much different culture when it comes to the consumption of political news than we had during Watergate. And I'll tell you one other thing. People like to forget this. We have the self-serving mythology about the way Watergate played out, but a lot of it was also people were unhappy with the way things were in the country at large under President Nixon, partly to inflation, right, which we have again right now, a bad economy. This time... We've got all of those things competing with this January 6th story, and they cut against the incumbent president rather than in favor of these hearings.
1: And, and, uh, Maria, I just want to note that uh, Mr. Del Rio, um, whether he was watching our show or heard from Dan Snyder or what, (laughs) I just put out a tweet saying, referencing that situation as a dust-up was irresponsible, negligent, Mm. I'm sorry. I stand by comments condemning violence in communities across the country. I say that while also expressing my support as an American citizen, for peaceful protest in our country, I fully supported all peaceful protests in America. Blah, 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 blah. So, um, see
17: what we did, Jay? I'll uh, well, be watching. He might, have, he might have done
1: that before we were talking about it. But, I and mean, look, you, you do hear that a lot like uh, people are outraged by January 6th. Where, where was the outrage when cities were burning uh, in the in the wake of the death of George Floyd? And I, I certainly understand that sentiment. Those, those, uh, that vandalism and that destruction of property was awful. But it's not the same thing.
17: It is absolutely not the same thing. And I'll tell you, one of the big differences is that Democrats absolutely condemned from the moment that it happened, all of that illegal vandalism and violence that happened on those streets. Uh, What Republicans have refused to do, except for very few, is to condemn what Donald Trump and everyone around him had been doing in terms of planning to overturn a free and fair election. And I think that what we're talking about the members of the committee understand that, or else I don't think they would have bothered to put this on prime time and to get a, and yeah. a producer to actually do it, to tell the story. That's what they need to do. Do
1: you think it was a tactical mistake uh, by Kevin McCarthy to bork- boycott this? There's no there's nobody that's going to be in this hearing that's going to argue anything that he agrees with.
20: I think it probably was mm-hmm. a tactical mistake. Um, they are saved by everything that we've been discussing at this table, given that a lot of his followers probably won't be watching it. But you want to have someone in the room to make those kind of headlines, right? Because if uh, there were a moment like that, they would capture it. It would go viral. It would be on Newsmax. It would be on Fox. And it would help them to, in their audiences discredit in their minds.
21: Yeah. Uh, is a mistake of, of Fox to not air this, do you think? Well, I mean, look, if again, if we're talking about when you talk to members of Congress that are involved in this committee and the goal that they've said, it is about portraying this and trying to show the truth that there was a threat to democracy that right. day. It, you can't deny that by having a major television network not air it, many people will miss that.
19: You, you can think McCarthy should have cooperated. But you can't deny that he has largely succeeded in delegitimizing this.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. He
19: made the right political call. Thanks to
1: one and all. (laughs) Appreciate it. She's been in Kyiv for less than two weeks. We're talking to the new U.S. ambassador to Ukraine about the challenges that lay ahead, including growing questions about what the end game might look like. Stay with us. In our world lead today, Ukrainian forces are considering drawing back in the Severodonetsk region. But military leaders clarify that the pullback is to reach a more fortified position, and they insist they're not going to give up a key city. This all comes as the U.S. is supplying more weapons to Ukraine in hopes of bolstering Ukrainian efforts against Russia. And joining us now is the new U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bridget Brink. She was confirmed by a unanimous voice vote in the Senate on May 18th, arrived in Kiev on May 29th. Madam Ambassador, thanks so much for joining us. You've only been on the job three weeks. Since then... The U.S. has reopened its embassy in Kiev, but on Sunday, Russia launched an airstrike on the capital city. Do you and your staff feel safe in the capital?
22: Well, Jake, thanks so much for having me. It's really great to be back. We're really proud and happy that the U.S. embassy has reopened in Kiev. Uh, my staff and I, obviously, we're, we're in a, an area of a war zone. Uh, But we feel very strongly that we need to be here in order to advance uh, U.S. interests and carry out the president's objectives and the interests of the people of America.
1: You note the importance of your being there. The U.S. has not had an official ambassador to Ukraine since 2019, when former President Trump removed Marie Yovanovitch. Do you think in any way a lack of U.S. leadership in Ukraine may have contributed in in any part to this war?
22: I mean, I would say that the president, uh, President Biden, Secretary Blinken, uh, Christina Kavine, who was a longtime and excellent charge uh, here in Kyiv, have been incredibly active uh, to gather a coalition of friends and partners in support of Ukraine in response to Russia's brutal attack. So, no, I think that, in fact, the opposite has happened in terms of um, we've done exactly what we said we would do. We told Russia that if it launched a war in Ukraine, that we would support Ukraine with weapons and other assistance, that we would um, put an unprecedented level of sanctions on Russia, and that we would also reinforce NATO's eastern flank, which is on the border of this conflict.
1: I want you to take a listen to what President Biden said about sending long-range rockets uh, to Ukraine last week. Are you going to
3: send long-range rocket systems to Ukraine?
15: We're not going to send to Ukraine rocket
1: systems that can
15: strike into Russia.
1: So that was the president saying we're not going to send to Ukraine rocket systems that can strike into Russia. But one day later, President Biden announced in an op-ed that he would give Ukraine rockets that could strike Russia. Why the flip flop?
22: I would just go back to uh, who started this war. It was Russia. Russia. It is Russia that is the aggressor. It is Russia that is changing or trying to change borders by force. This is a very dangerous precedent to happen in Europe, uh, and one which is in the United States' national interest to uh, prevent and stop. So, President Biden and the Congress and the American people have now given uh, an enormous amount of support and are supporting Ukraine and its ability to defend itself and deter further Russian aggression. And this is exemplified in the latest supplemental package uh, of $40 billion, uh, which President Biden signed on May 21st. And we are working closely with partners and allies to make sure that we're working together. And it it really is important that now we support Ukraine now more than ever.
1: Okay. You don't want to answer the question. Um, I'll move on to a bigger one, a bigger picture one. We're more than 100 days into the war. It appears to be in effect Uh, a stalemate. Uh, Last week, President Zelensky said Russian forces control 20 percent of Ukraine. How do you anticipate this is going to end?
22: I mean, I might characterize it differently. I think that it is quite remarkable and shows the incredible courage and bravery of the Ukrainians that essentially this David and Goliath story, the Ukrainians have pushed back uh, Russia from the capital, which it had amassed troops. And I was just recently in Buchan Irpin, which are two of the cities right right at the capital um, gate, so to speak, where the Russians were trying to come in to what appeared to be take over the capital. Now the Russians have regrouped and they're in the in the south and in the east. And the fighting in the east is very close and very difficult. It's street by street. And so I guess I would characterize it as... Um, An incredible fight where the Ukrainians have had incredible um, success because of their bravery. Everybody knows and has seen President Zelensky, and he has inspired the entire world. Um, And now, as I would say again, it's more, more, now is more important than ever to support the Ukrainians in this fight. They're fighting uh, and dying in the Donbass to try to uh, stop Russia from changing borders by force.
1: Ambassador Bridget Brink, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, tacos will soon be falling from the sky. And yes, I I mean that literally. Stay with us.
0: It's raining
17: tacos from out of the sky.
1: That's right. It's raining tacos. Kind of. At a brand new Taco Bell in suburban Minneapolis, drive-thru customers receive their food from the sky, or rather via mini-elevators from a kitchen above the drive-thru lanes. Taco Bell says the design is a response to the way fast food orders have changed during the pandemic, but I would like to think that somewhere the Jetsons are celebrating that they manifested this dream come true. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf. What's in the Situation Room? I'll see you tomorrow.